This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Healthcare Reform, A Surgeon's Perspective. And the author is Dr. Ashraf Hilmi. And Dr. Hilmi joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Hilmi. Hello there. Great to have you with us. You're providing, as you call it, and as I've uh, read, uh, an honest analysis of our healthcare delivery system. You don't care to be politically correct, <laughs> and you're going to, as you put it, dissect the cost drivers and lay the blame squarely on the shoulders of those responsible for all these medical escalating costs, which basically, at this moment in time, is out of control, isn't it? Yes, sir. Absolutely. And with no end in sight, uh, as you call it, uh, our system is broken and rapidly spiraling into a black hole. Well, before we get into the details and, and some of your recommendations, tell us about yourself, doctor, and what was the big uh, you know, genesis behind writing this book? Well, um, I, I've been in practice um, uh, finished medical school in 1979, and uh, I've had the privilege of uh, being a physician uh, in various different locations across the country and in different practice settings. Um, I also have a Master's in Business Administration and am board certified in healthcare administration, so I, I have the opportunity to see things from a fairly comprehensive um, viewpoint that uh, allows me to have a uh, thorough analytical uh, presence about the, the problem of, of healthcare. Um, the the major reason behind me wanting to write this book is, uh, is simply that I see this in my practice every day. I see how the current system is, is inefficient and how it is hurting. When when my patients can't afford. I'm not talking about cosmetic surgery. I'm talking about simple things like hernia surgery or breast cancer surgery, and, and they're being turned down for such basic requirements. Um, it's, it's a travesty, in my opinion, that um, the most economically prolific country in the world is incapable of dealing with the health care needs of its, uh, of its citizens. Um, and I decided that it's time to do something about it, and, and the book. And you've written this with the layperson in mind. Yes, yes, because uh, I'm trying to, to reach the layperson so that we can generate a grassroots uh, movement because the, the government is not going to tell the layperson what's wrong or how to fix it. They, they have an agenda such as Obamacare, which the average citizen has no idea what that is. And Obamacare, with all due respect, as much as I believe in a, a network for every citizen to be able to be insured, is not the answer. That, that's a drop in the bucket. And um, so by writing this book, the layperson is going to be able to understand in very simple terms the various 
aspects of the healthcare conundrum. They will be able to see why it costs us so much money and understand how much money is actually being spent on this on this uh, uh, this topic, this issue, healthcare, um, and get a, a better feel as to how we can fix this from somebody who's on the front lines, who's actually day in, day out dealing with these issues, not a, a politician sitting in Washington, D.C. Now, you compare our system with models across the world, and as you do that, what do you find? Uh, you will be extremely surprised to realize or to find out that despite us spending more than any other country in the world, um, by leaps and bounds, considering our, our differences in our gross domestic product, um, we are last in line when compared to the top seven healthcare provider countries in the world. We're last in line in terms of overall quality of care and accessibility and equity and life expectancy and diabetes management uh, and morbid obesity. Um, so I find that, number one, <laughs> we're the only civilized, westernized, easternized, or any other country in the world that has not ratified the United Nations uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was an article that was promulgated in, uh, on December the 10th of 1949 as a, uh, a consequence of the, the social and economic and other statues or, or uh, issues that were present after World War II. And the world got together and, and basically came up with an International Bill of Human Rights part of which is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, an article that addresses 30 specific items. And I, article number 25 specifically addresses the citizen having the right to have a standard of living that allows them to have adequate housing, adequate health care, employment, and so on. And every country that belongs to the United Nations has signed and ratified that, and that has gone on to become part of several international legislations and constitutions. The only country that did not do so is the United States. And that, to me, is mind-boggling, <laughs> that we have this defiant, in-your-face attitude, and we have nothing to show for it. You, you would think that everybody would, would think that the United States has the best healthcare system of the world, and, and we don't. So by comparing this, the, the average reader can... can See how healthcare is delivered in other countries, and the specific model that I use as a role model is the Netherlands model, where uh, the government mandates a healthcare insurance law, but it does not provide it. It's not a government-run bureaucracy or agency. It's a free market capitalist enterprise where insurers compete with each other for the insured uh, dollar, and they also um, compare outcomes of different medical practices so that they can contract with specific practitioners. So it's a market-based free enterprise system that allows for, for competition and fairness and has every citizen insured. For those under 18, they're insured at no cost. For those that are employed, they're insured through mostly through their employers. Uh, they, they have the option to purchase it themselves for those that have disabilities or pre-existing conditions, the government has subsidies to help them with that. So every citizen is insured, and that's the way I think we should do it. Well, competition seems to always be a, a part of that puzzle. Uh, I don't know how key that is, but 
it it seems to me as looking back over the last oh fifty years uh, at one time we had an effective system an inexpensive system uh can't believe how little it cost to have some of my children in those early days back in the oh in the seventies uh, when we started our family but Boy, it's just grown out of control. What is the drivers of this? There are a multitude of drivers, um, as you will see in, in my book, and, and there are various drivers. Part of it definitely is that good care costs money. When, when you have to have a, an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging, or a CAT scan, those machines didn't happen on their own. They, they were developed. There's an industry behind it. There's a science behind it. And, and that costs money. But how we spend our healthcare dollar... Is, is a huge part of the problem. The unbridled, um, just lavish spending on, on all sorts of things that are totally unnecessary because of the culture that has been generated in the practice of medicine in the United States. I, I'll give you a very simple example. A diabetic female who has a small boil, a small abscess on her side of the abdomen and her flank, who is seen by her family physician. The family physician is a a general practitioner who's rotated through medicine and surgery and pediatrics and, and obstetrics and gynecology who can handle pretty much all the normal day-in and day-out stuff. We're not talking about an appendectomy or a gallbladder operation. We're talking about a small boil on the side of the patient's abdomen. So instead of doing what would normally be appropriate, starting her on some antibiotics by mouth, injecting some local anesthetic, and lancing this abscess at the, the office setting, patient gets admitted to the hospital to a medical service, which in turn consults an infectious disease specialist and a surgical consult for lancing this thing, which I did at the bedside in her room. Um, this is preposterous. This is completely out of control. Uh, the, <laughs> the reason for this is that the mindset, the culture that has been generated through our training programs and also fear of litigation, the malpractice environment, is completely, um, it, it, is, it is so, it hinders the practice of medicine because every physician is looking over their shoulder to see who is going to be suing them for, for what. So all sorts of unnecessary tests are done, all sorts of consultations are generated just so that what we call cover your ass medicine, so that the lawyers don't come out and get you. Um, and that, that's a huge cost driver. You talk about no significant major change is done without some sacrifice. Now, that's a word that scares a lot of people. Correct. As a society, we cannot continue on the status quo. We are spending 25% of our lifetime health expenditure in the last year of life on patients that should not be treated the way we are currently treating them. We have patients that are in a vegetative state, nearly comatose, in a nursing home with no meaningful quality of life, in a state of contracture where their extremities are all contracted, they're not ambulatory, they're bedridden, they don't recognize their family, yet they're still on dialysis. That, that is not appropriate. You, you have to ration health care, and that scares a lot of people, but we do. There's only so much money to go around. You, you cannot be spending that kind of money in the last year of life on somebody who is terminally ill or has no meaningful quality of life and not be able to help the working guy who has a hernia, who does not have health insurance and can't afford it and can't get put on Medicaid 
because he makes a little bit too much money. That's a sacrifice we have to make, and that's something we have to deal with. We, we will not be able to have the continued status quo and be able to cut down on medical expenditure. Uh, the, the other sacrifice is going to be from, from doctors. We are going to have to look at the employment model where physicians are employed by a multi-specialty group practice setting, such as the Mayo Clinic or the Geisner Clinic or Scott & White. Uh, that's something that the government has been calling for since the 1930s, because healthcare is a lot more efficient and more comprehensive when it's practiced by a comprehensive, accountable care organization that has a common medical record, a common methodology, a, a common direction. Everybody's marching to the beat of the same drummer, as opposed to the mom-and-pop cottage industry practices where everybody does whatever they please with no accountability, and basically the more you do, the more money you get. Well, that model is out the window. It's, it's disappearing rapidly. Within my lifetime, within the next few decades, the majority of physicians in the United States are going to be employed. And, you know, we, we have not policed ourselves. We have continued to spend uh, w with no added size, like there is no tomorrow and, and we can do whatever we want. Well, it's going to happen to us because we have not been able to curtail our spending. So these are some of the sacrifices that I'm talking about. Well, and it seems like that same philosophy is just part of everyday life here in America, from the government, a lot of people running up their credit cards. I mean, it just goes on and on. It just seems to be an epidemic of irresponsibility. Yes, I agree. So give us your postscript on Obamacare as we close out this interview. Well, Obamacare was just being debated by the Supreme Court when I was finishing up my book, and I really wasn't sure what it was all about. I did some research, and um, from my book, you, you will realize that I am in favor of some kind of health mandate. Definitely not health care provided by the government, but a mandate that everybody has health care. And what Obamacare does is just that. He, he has set out a ruling that states that every citizen in this country has to have health insurance. Otherwise, you pay a penalty. And he breaks that down, or the, the authors of the plan break that down, depending on your age and your income. And that's perfectly fine. And the details I'll, I'll be happy to go into, but the, the more important message I want to make very clear is that Obamacare is not going to fix anything because the, the cost equation is cost drivers and availability of money. And neither of those have changed. The pool of money that's covering the American citizen today has not changed. Okay? He's going to raise taxes on those making over a finite sum of money that has been debated somewhere from 200 to 400, 500,000. Well, that's going to run the government for about five days. So that, that's not going to improve the amount of money available to give to the average citizen to cover the health care costs. So that alone does absolutely nothing. The money that he's going to take from Medicare and Medicaid to provide for the insurance package that, that Obamacare calls for is is not going to magically appear out of nowhere. He's going to have to take it from elsewhere. So as an example, my fees for Medicare have, have been dropping every year for, for the last several years. I make 30% less today than what I did 10 years ago for the same procedures for a Medicare patient. So that's going to continue. So the, the pool, the pot of money is shrinking and it's, it's not expanding. The other thing is 
nothing has been done to address the escalating costs of healthcare delivery. Nobody has looked at meaningful tort reform. Nobody has looked at how we can decrease the expenditures uh, by physicians. Nobody has looked at um, the, the the problem with with the escalating costs of medications, prescription medications, or medical devices. And you're not going to solve that problem un- unless we have a comprehensive approach to the healthcare problem. This is not going to be something we need to tweak. We need to put this in a plastic bag, shake it upside down its head, and start all over. And we need to stop putting our head in the sand and being politically correct because that's not going to get us anywhere. And that's where I come in at the last chapter before the uh, postscript and, and talk about meaningful reform. This is how we can do this. Uh, and, and I hope somebody in Washington reads this and and takes action because uh, I'm serious of a heart attack. This is not going to change unless we, we have that kind of radical approach. You've been listening to Dr. Ashraf A. Hilmi. He is the author of his book, Healthcare Reform, A Surgeon's Perspective. Dr. Hilmi, tell us how to get your book. You can uh, find it on Amazon.com, or you can get it through iUniverse, or you can get it through Barnes & Noble. Well, thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, sir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Democracy's Big Day, the inauguration of our president, 1789 to 2013, Jim Bendit. 
he is the author, and he has been doing this for some time. Jim, welcome to iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me, Steve. Well, you're a veteran of inaugurations. You've been to some. You have reported on uh, different aspects of them. And this book is what number? What edition is this? This is the, this is the fourth edition. The uh, first one was published in 2000, and then 04, 08, and then 2012. So each election year, that's when I've been doing it. And some have called, uh, in fact, uh, Donald Kennan, chief historian of the U.S. Historical Society, calls your book simply the best and most enjoyable, reliable, useful compendium of historical information on all aspects of this transcendent American public political ceremony. I mean, it is a big, uh, well, we all know it's the biggest event of the year politically. In our country, it only takes place once every four years, and other countries don't do it like the United States does, so it certainly is a big event. So as you look at through the years, there's obviously some things that stand out uh, to you. Uh, we'll kind of reserve the latest one uh, just happened this, uh, this week. We'll, we'll, this past week, we'll, we'll, we'll reserve that to the end. But So give us some of your most unusual, most standout kind of uh, events that happened at the inauguration through the years. In my book, I talk about not only the historic traditions, the things that everybody's used to seeing, but also some of the oddball and quirky events that have taken place over the years. And we've had a number of them. Um, they, they range from issues such as uh, the podium one time catching fire. Oh, um, goodness. That was 1961, right in the middle of Cardinal Cushing's invocation. Um, there was a, a short in the electrical system, and some marshals quickly put it out. And uh, but then you should see the, the looks of concern on President, uh, President, outgoing President Eisenhower's and incoming President Kennedy's face. There's a picture of it in my book. The picture is just priceless. And at the same inauguration, 1961, Vice President Lyndon Johnson botched the vice presidential inaugural oath. And we saw that happen four years ago with Chief Justice Roberts and President Obama. They had problems getting through it as well. 1961 also had the first poet ever to deliver a poem at an inauguration. And on that occasion, Robert Frost, 86 years old, he wrote a special poem for the occasion called Dedication. Um, but it snowed the night before uh, the ceremony. And on inauguration morning, it was very sunny. The sky was blue. And the, the sun was reflecting off of the fresh snow, creating a glare so that Frost couldn't read the words that he had written to his new poem. And instead, he delivered an older poem, The Gift Outright, one which he knew by heart. And you've had other problems, too, throughout the years. Um, some, back in 1873, they, um, they had an inaugural ball on a very cold night, and they forgot to heat the place where the ball was held. So the food froze. Everybody was trying to dance in their long overcoats. They were stumbling over one another. And somebody had brought in some canaries, about 100 canaries, to hopefully merrily chirp away for the guests in <laughs> attendance at that inaugural ball. But it was so cold that the canaries froze to death. Oh, my goodness. Your background, you've been involved with the last three presidential inaugurations, and you've worked as a television correspondent. I have. I've worked, I've worked for MSNBC and 
and a couple of British networks, ITN and Sky News, and and a, lot, and a lot of the other networks, even if I wasn't with them specifically on inauguration day, have uh, called upon me to uh, give some background on the inauguration and some analysis. And I've been very grateful for that. Tell us about how your, bro your book is broken down into different sections. Give us kind of that overview of it. Sure. I'd, I made the decision to not just make it a chronological recitation of, a, of presidential inaugurations. I didn't want to just have it start with George Washington and then John Adams and then, and then go from there in order. Instead, I divided it up by the various parts of the day. So you have the morning hours, the church service, and then when the old and the new get together, the procession to the Capitol, the, the ceremony, which includes both the oath as well as the inaugural address, then the inaugural parade in the afternoon and the inaugural balls at night. And within, within each of those sections, I sprinkle in various vignettes, often colorful, some of them funny, um, just different vignettes within each of those sections. And that's how I chose, chose to divide it up. And, of course, you end with uh, a section titled Sudden Death and Resignation. Right. And so aside from the regular traditional inauguration day, which includes those various parts of the day that I just mentioned, you can't talk about inauguration history without also talking about the sudden ones, the inaugurations that took place either after the death of a president or, in Richard Nixon's case, a resignation. And so each of those inaugurations were special in, in their own way, um, and sometimes you had an, an, a different, an unusual sort of person who was swearing in the new president. For example, uh, federal district judge Sarah T. Hughes um, swore in Lyndon B. Johnson uh, aboard Air Force One on the ground in Dallas, Texas, right after the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, and she became the only woman to ever swear in a president. And then another sudden inauguration um, was that of Calvin Coolidge. And when I learned about that story, that really was probably more of an inspiration for my book than any other story, because Calvin Coolidge was actually sworn in by his own father. How would that happen? Coolidge became president after the death of Warren G. Harding in 1923. And at the time of Harding's death, Coolidge was visiting his father, who lived in a small cottage in Vermont, a cottage that had no running water, no electricity, and no telephone. And in the middle of the night, a courier arrived to give them the news that Harding had passed away and that Coolidge needed to be sworn in as soon as possible. So the question was, who was going to do it? Who was going to swear in the new mm -hmm. president? And the answer, as I mentioned, turned out to be his own father. John Coolidge was the local justice of the peace and a notary mm -hmm. public. And so mm -hmm. by the light of an old kerosene lamp, in the middle of the night, he swore in his own son as president. Boy, it is the very peaceful and uh, at times uh, unorthodox transfer of power, only in the United States. Well, we, we certainly have our special way of doing it, that's for sure. Um, the old and the new usually get along. It's usually very, very orderly, no problems at all. There have been a couple of occasions when that wasn't the case, most recently, 1953, Truman and Eisenhower had some strong words for one another. Um, 1933 was another occasion, Hoover and FDR. A lot of great pictures from that one, and they're, they're driving along in their open convertible. And in every picture 
um, you'll ever see, Hoover just stares straight ahead, ignoring Roosevelt. Meanwhile, in some of those pictures, Roosevelt's trying to talk to Hoover. Sometimes he's waving to the crowd. Sometimes he's smiling. But Hoover just ignores FDR during the entire ride to the Capitol. Now, the oath of office to the president. Uh, there is a tradition there. Most people may think it's in the Constitution. Well, I've, I bet you're talking about the words, so help me God. Correct. Which are not, which, and those four words are definitely not in the Constitution. We do now, every inauguration since 1933, the Chief Justice, who prompts the president, seems to say those words first, and then the president repeats them, almost as if they are a part of the, of the oath itself, but they're not. Um, uh, there's a legend that George Washington actually added those mm-hmm. four words after, at, at the time of the first inauguration, way back in 1789. Right. And a lot of historians originally believed it to be true, but more and more has come out. It, it appears that there are no contemporaneous accounts that from that time period from 1789 that where anybody ever suggested that Washington added those words. The first time that ever anybody suggested that he did say, so help me God, was 65 years later in 1854. Uh, A well-known writer, Washington Irving, was cited as as saying that he heard Washington say those words in 1789. Well, the problem was Washington Irving was only six years old in 1789. And even from his own accounts, he was at least 200 feet away from the uh, inaugural uh, platform and or balcony, actually, in that case, where it took place in New York City, 200 feet away with no um, loudspeakers, no megaphone. It's really doubtful that a six-year-old kid could have heard such a thing and then remember it for the first time 65 years later. But it's, 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 that's the legend. And why did it start in 1933? Well, uh, we know that eight, in 1881, Chester Arthur did say, so help me God. The, the record is largely unclear as to whether presidents may have said it before him and after him. Um, there is a sound recording from 1929, which indicates that Herbert Hoover did not add those words. But by then, there was this legend going around that George Washington had mm-hmm. said it. And, and beginning with 1933 with Franklin D. Roosevelt, said it was it. said. What's your favorite inauguration? Well, I'd have to say 1961. I've already alluded to it. It's, it's my favorite, not only because of the quirks that I mentioned, Lyndon Johnson botching the oath and Robert Frost and, um, and, the, and the, the, the podium incident with the, uh, the electrical short, but also, of course, you had John F. Kennedy, the youngest ever elected president, and the inaugural oath that he gave is is, was one of the great ones of all time. Nobody has matched it since, and only a few, uh, all, few uh, gave great inaugural addresses before him. So that's my favorite for those reasons, and also because it's the first one I remember as a kid. Well, we must be prepared for the unexpected on Inauguration Day. Uh, you've talked about a, a couple of them. Uh, inaugural parties ever gotten out of hand? Well, back in... 1829, there was an inaugural party, different from an inaugural ball. There was a back in those in, back in those days. They used to have receptions at the White House, um, 
where the new president would invite anybody who wanted to show up to come on in and shake hands. Abraham Lincoln had one. It's estimated he shook hands with thousands, with like five or 6,000 people in just a few hours. Well, in 1829, Andrew Jackson hosted a reception, and that, that was really the first time a Washington outsider ever became president. And the people showed up that day, the supporters of Jackson, they were wearing their raggedy clothes and their muddy boots, and they just trampled the White House. They, they wrecked the carpeting and the curtains, just created quite a mess. And inside the White House, they, fought, they were trying to figure out, how are we going to end this fiasco? How, how can we get this thing to end? Somebody got the brilliant idea of putting a couple of tubs of whiskey out onto the White House lawn, and slowly but surely, everybody left. Give us uh, kind of a review, your your latest, uh, were you there for the uh, Obama inauguration just uh, last week? Um, no, I didn't attend that one. I was, uh, I was reporting on it um, live for a couple of different networks, but I was doing that from Los Angeles via remote. Um, I did attend Obama's uh, in 2009, as well as, as George W. Bush's, both of his. So I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I certainly followed it closely. So what's your view of this inauguration? Uh, how would you, in the, in the closing uh, of this interview, give us your take? Well, we had uh, an array of uh, singers that were unmatched in inauguration history. There's some word that Beyonce may have lip-synced her, her rendition of the national anthem, but it was still a great, great rendition. James Taylor and Kelly Clarkson were terrific also. Um, uh, the Chief Justice, Rehnquist, he re used his notes this time in, um, in, in uh, reciting the uh, inaugural <laughs> oath to uh, President Obama, so no mistakes were made this time. That was good. It wasn't a real eventful um, inauguration in terms of anything unusual. Um, Obama, though, did give an inaugural address, which was extremely progressive. A lot, some pundits are saying he didn't have a lot of uh, catchphrases and memorable moments, but he did. He did really talk about um, a number of issues that you just hadn't seen before in an in an inaugural address. He um, he, he used the phrase, "Our journey is not complete." And in, and in doing so, he, he was talking about the rights of women, the rights of gay people, the rights of voters, immigration issues. And as I, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that, in a way, this was almost his I have a dream type speech. The inauguration took place on Martin Luther King Day. He used Martin Luther King's Bible. He, he spoke from the Capitol and on the exact opposite side of the Washington Mall, there's the Lincoln Memorial, where Martin Luther King uh, delivered his I Have a Dream speech. And so Obama has a dream that those issues involving women and, and, gay, and gay people and voters and immigrants, he has, he has a dream that, that things can improve along those, uh, you know, throughout his, during his term. And so that's how he expressed it. Not quite as articulate, of course, as Martin Luther King was, who could be. But um, it was his moment. It was his moment. And we'll just see what happens over the next four years. Democracy's big day. The inauguration of our president, 1789 to 2013. Jim, 
Bendet. He is the author and provides a lot of photographs and great history, a lot of great stories, very unique. His fourth volume. Jim, tell us how to get your book. Well, of course, it's available through iUniverse. It's also available through Amazon.com and uh, through uh, Barnes & Noble also. It's available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. And hope everybody checks it out. Thank you very much, Jim, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve, for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, What We Tell. And the author is Holly W. Schwartztoll. And Holly joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Holly. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, talk about friendships. We're going to talk about psychologists. We're going to talk about secrets. And, of course, the big challenge when friendships meet up against ethical challenges, uh, how strong are those friendships? Uh, and you come at this uh, being a psychologist yourself. Yes, I've been uh, in private practice for 30 years. 30 years. So we're going to yeah. kind of take an inside look into the secrets of psychologists? <laughs> well, kind of. I kind mean, of. It's interesting because I didn't start off you know, with that intention, but yeah, in a way that's what happened. Well, you hear all kinds of things, that's for sure, and all kinds of situations, and so here you are creating a situation among three psychologists, good friends. Let's see, we have Ruth, Jocelyn, and Sylvia. So who are these people? Are these people for real? Do you know people like this? Well, no, this is fiction. 
So it's nobody in particular, although every psychologist in Miami is wondering if it's them. (laughs) (laughs) And is it me? And is it them? And it's really uh, just a composite. It's really, you know, as they say, it's fiction. um, Mm -hmm. We write what we know in a sense, but it's no one in particular. So who was created first? Which of the characters? Ruth. Ruth, why? Um, well, Ruth, you know, it's interesting. When I write, um, the, this book evolved over many years, and uh, I just started with the idea that I wanted to write about friend, good friends. And so I guess they all came up fairly much together, but Ruth is kind of the central character. Um, but they all play off of each other. The thing is, when I, I don't sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write this book with this plot and this is what's going to happen. The characters show me what to do and what they're doing. They just pop in and, and, and show me. And then at the end, I pull it all together and have it make sense. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about just friends. We're talking about close friends. Very close friends. They've been friends for decades. And they meet regularly, and they share personal and professional concerns. I mean, they're they're laying their hearts on the line most of the time. Yeah, they they meet uh, pretty regularly, uh, at least once a month, sometimes more. And they you know, they've been through everything in their families uh, with each other. It's a long time. In fact, two of them actually met in graduate school. And of course, like all of us. They all have their secrets. Why do you? That's st- why I say that what we tell is as much what we don't tell. Mm, true. And what, how do you trust? Right. You know uh, what you can say to your friends, even dear friends who are therapists. So the theme of the book. Uh, well, um, theme of the book is. There's sort of a number of themes, but it's it's about women's friendships, and uh, and it's also about how um, it's difficult sometimes to separate your friendships from your professional um, life, uh, and not just your friendships, but the way you interact with your families, uh, that how uh, their children. Um, respond differently to them because they're therapists. And uh, it's, um, trying to think exactly, just to give you a specific one um, sentence theme would really be um, three female psychologists who navigate, as, as they navigate the waters of friendship, aging, and the collision of personal and professional ethics. And aging is a major concern? Well, it's 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 a concern. It's not uh, yes. I mean, they they talk about feeling, uh, you know, kind of. The, the, these women are basically in their late fifties and sixties, and they are they talk about how they're not how they're kind of ignored when they sit in restaurants and people don't really know, notice them so much anymore. They have different concerns in terms of uh, their husbands and and. Uh, their aging process. So it's not an aging book per se, but there's quite a, a lot of that uh, comes up. Well, the, the start of the book starts off so just tranquil, just in the ocean, and then all of a sudden 
it turns a uh, very, very fast paced, very violent. What, why did you choose to do that? Well, uh, why did I choose to do that? It just, um, again, I think what's interesting about for me writing is that, um, I guess I wanted to set the stage of here's somebody who, who has a sense of foreboding something is coming. She doesn't exactly know what. Um, and uh, as you see from the first page, you discover that this is a, a dream that she has. But it does set the stage for the rest of the novel. Foreboding is a key, key word? Yes. Foreboding. That does have a, a kind of a, kind of, when you say it, it kind of puts a shiver up your spine. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it does do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, because the dream, the start, you know, it, it's about a tsunami, and, mm-hmm. and people start this book. You know, I watch them. I say, read the first page, and they're reading like, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is about a tsunami!" You know, oh, like the movies. You know, right. and then they realize, no, it's it's not exactly about that. Uh, but it is about you know that that this uh, woman sort of intuits that something's going on in her life that's not right, but she doesn't know exactly what. So, is this a book for women only? Well, you know, when I wrote this book, I really thought I was writing it for women. I was thinking basically educated women over 40 or 45. But I cannot tell you how many men love this book. And uh, it's it's very interesting. I mean, one of them said to me, I love this because it feels like I'm a fly on the wall and I understand (laughs) how women think, Mm. you know. And really, it's... It really surprised me. So I can't just say it's a woman's book anymore. Well, that's a great comment coming from yeah. a man. That's a great yeah. comment, yes. Uh, in fact, um, one, one man said it's quoted on the back of the hardcover. He says, um, a fascinating read that helps us understand how people, regardless of their efforts to do the right thing, are vulnerable to fall into circumstances that do not necessarily provide the right outcome. But, you know, several of them have said this is, well, people in general are telling it's a page turner. And uh, well, I'm happy about that. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That's always yeah. a, a key, key phrase hearing right. from readers, from critics. Right. So we talk about secrets. Uh, we talk about, you know, keeping them or telling them. Uh, when is it best not to divulge your personal secrets? Well, doesn't that really depend on so many circumstances, you know? Uh, and, and it's, you know, people in, the, in this book even discover that they can tell something to someone and the person says, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I understand. But the, then you also are aware of what the person's really thinking. Well, maybe they don't quite understand. And so it's, you know, how judgmental are we of each other? Uh, that mm-hmm. is part of it, you know. Um, but, you know, it, the secrets, I mean, some of them develop sort of it, it, during the book itself, during the, the story. Some of the secrets are old secrets that they've never told anyone. Um, and it, it's really a, a whole lot about uh, how can they... Uh, Trust each other and sort of trust themselves, I would say. And the other piece about this that I think is important is that 
you you get an op- opportunity when you read this book to understand uh, what your psychologist is thinking, both during sessions because it it, it um, does take you into the offices of the psychologists themselves, so you do you are privy to certain uh, things that happen in the sessions, kind of what they're thinking about in terms of things like how often it happens that somebody comes to see you whose problems uh, echo a problem in your own life that you're dealing with, you're trying to deal with at the time yourself. And you kind of get a, you know, the book shows you uh, what the psychologist is thinking, how they're feeling, how they struggle with their own issues, mm-hmm. which they don't, you know, naturally tell their clients if we protect our clients we don't we don't uh, lay that on them, but how we're all it's basically we're all human right right and in this case, we've got one of these secrets also concerns a client which really multiplies all kinds of complications among them exactly exactly, and then they really have to figure out how uh, that person has to really uh, weigh quite a, a, a number of different things in terms of can she hold the secret? Is this something she has to reveal? But how can she? And as you put it, it also you know they wonder psychology by itself is it enough? Uh, do they look for guidance? And I guess they look for it from another source. Yes, they do. They're actually uh, all three of these women are. Uh, do some uh, psycho-spiritual work and are interested uh, kind of in the whole person, the mind, body, spirit uh, aspects of people. And they also call upon uh, other uh, guidance for themselves. And uh, so that, that, that evolves as they are trying to figure out what to do. And that's your background as well? Yes. Yes, I did have a holistic center here in Miami for about, uh, well, a few years, about 20 years ago for a few years. And I have been very interested in psycho-spiritual work for quite a long time. Another thing... What was fun about this book is that I I got to kind of include all sorts of things that are important to me, but uh, have it be part of the story. Very good. Another part of this book, another theme that runs through it, the challenges of parenting as a mental health professional. Yes, because, you know, when you're a mother, you have certain things you say to your child. And a lot of times uh, these women, uh, their children are saying, stop being a psychologist. You know, don't treat me like one of your patients. And Mm -hmm. you're not doing that. You know, it, you may have some extra wisdom that you you would think, why wouldn't my children appreciate that? But that so that that um, in fact one of the characters wonders a lot. You know, why it would be so nice if her family would value her advice the way her clients do. What what do you what thoughts do you want your readers to keep returning to in their minds after they complete this book? Well, uh, I want them to, um, to to understand, I guess, the um, the trickiness of and the complications of friendship, uh, and um, to um, 
kind of understand um, how things are not always so black and white and uh, that that it's important to have friends and to be able to tell them things. Being a professional and being a good friend can be have multiple challenges. And again, you know, how, how even when people struggle to do the right thing, that they sometimes face circumstances that cloud the issues and, and how our issues are limited uh, by conflicting loyalties. Mm-hmm. So do we owe anyone a duty of total candor? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it, uh, maybe we, we, who we owe the most is ourselves. You know, can we be honest with ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, honesty is important, but sometimes you have to really weigh uh, how much you say to whom. And... Uh, you know, some people just blurt everything out all the time to everybody, and maybe that's not such a great thing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think it's just so individual. Don't you? Right. Well, I think so, but it's a, it is an interesting question. That's for sure. Well, What We Tell, that's the title of your book, What We Tell, Holly W. Schwartz Toll. Holly, tell us how to get your book. You can get it uh, on uh, Amazon or on uh, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's published by iUniverse. You can go directly to iUniverse to get that. Uh, any bookstore can order it. And it, it's also it's available as um, paperback, hardcover, and as an ebook. It's available on Kindle, for example. Thank you so much, Holly, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.